Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, What is the Islamic event about? Well, it's called Eid al-Adha. The date is August 2018. The place, Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is a secret plan to literally sneak 50,000 Muslims into the Vikings U.S. Bank Stadium for a, quote, a show of power. It was exactly the type of gathering you'd expect the right wing to go bananas over. 23,000 Muslims and their friends gathering in a Minneapolis football stadium to celebrate Eid. But what even is Eid? Let alone this celebration dubbed Super Eid. The Eid festival consists of a prayer and a sermon which the religious organization puts together followed by a lot of private fun-making. This is Imam Asad Zaman, the executive director of the Muslim American Society of Minnesota and one of the organizers of Super Eid. So they show up early in the morning, have this prayer, and then the whole day and sometimes the whole next two or three days consists of doing various fun things, which in its most tame version is visiting house by house and eating lots of food. Uh, At its uh, more elaborate versions, you know, people go to Valley Fair, people go to the Mall of America, people go to the local amusement park, uh, kids show up at arcade games. So all those fun institutions know the date of Eid. So this Super Eid was basically a local community carnival on steroids. The Super Eid Festival was basically a group of mosques came together and said, we want to do a festival together. And so we went and tried to find the largest venue we could rent, which in Minnesota was the Viking Stadium or the U.S. Bank Stadium. And since that was the site of the Super Bowl, we decided to call our event Super Eid. It's basically a normal Eid prayer, except there are more people. We ended up getting about 40, 45,000 people. The stadium staff had these counters, and somewhere around 35,000, they lost track of, they lost the ability to count the sheer number of crowds that showed up. And as you heard earlier, as soon as Super Eid was announced, a whole slew of paranoid far-right groups in Minnesota sounded the alarm about everything they imagined would happen at Eid depicting it as a Muslim takeover. So how do you fight back when someone tries to paint your inclusive community celebration as a demonic display of power? You refuse their narrative and reinforce your own. We came up with a slogan called Eid is for everyone. The word Eid is simply an Arabic word and it means festival. So everyone can be in festivities. I mean, you don't have to be Muslim. You don't have to have fasted. There is no reason why a Christian or a Jewish person or a person of no faith cannot come and participate in this festivity. 
So, so the marketing of Eid is for everybody brought forth many non-Muslim allies just to come and see what it's all about. I mean, you know, people are curious. I've never been to an Eid. Let me go check it out. As it turned out, many non-Muslims did just that. And even with the right wing trying its best to create a controversy, Super Eid unfolded as a welcoming, warm gathering, complete with a bouncy house and petting zoo. People say to me, you gotta be crazy. How can you sing in times like these? Don't you read the news? Don't you know the score? How can you sing? And so many others By way of a reply, I say a fool such as I, who sees his song as somewhere to begin. This is Brave New Words, and I'm Anat Shanker Osorio. As a communications consultant working with advocates for human rights, equality, and justice, I believe the job of a good message isn't to say what's popular. It's to make popular what we need said. I examine people's underlying assumptions and perceptions in order to understand why certain messages resonate where others falter. And now, with the help of some of the world's boldest, most strategic, and accomplished campaigners, I'm exploring the words that have won us progressive victories. These six episodes can provide a playbook for how to engage our base, persuade the middle, and reveal the opposition for the outliers they are. So Super Eid was in the summer of 2018, right in the middle of the midterm campaign season. And Minnesota was sitting right in the middle of a GOP bullseye. In 2016, Hillary Clinton won this historically liberal-leaning state by just two points, the lowest percentage a Democratic winner had received since 1992. Seeing this, Republicans thought Minnesota's white working-class voters would be receptive to their fear-based, anti-immigrant, dog-whistle-laden campaign. Republican money was pouring in, aiming to turn Minnesota red, like all of its neighbors. What became clear coming out of the 2016 election was that the bet that some politicians were making on Minnesota was that a racial wedge and racial polarization strategy rooted in right-wing populism was the path to victory in Minnesota. That's Doran Trance, the executive director of the faith-based progressive organizations Isaiah and Faith in Minnesota. And the particular manifestation that that took in our context was creating a kind of fear-based narrative about immigrants, immigrants of color, and in particular, Muslim immigrants in Minnesota. So it sort of sat at the intersection of um, immigrants are taking our collective benefits And secondly, Muslim immigrants in particular are advancing a strategy in Minnesota to create Sharia law, to foster terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. So it was basically trying to say that immigrants of color are fleecing the system away from regular white Minnesotans. And there is like a culture clash, a religious ethnic culture clash that needs to be confronted. Um, And in particular, we should be afraid 
of the growing Muslim population in our state. We heard this very clearly in the Super Eid backlash, and with a huge electoral opportunity. Several congressional races, both U.S. Senate seats, the Minnesota House, the state attorney general's seat, and the governorship in play, there was this huge question. How do you campaign against these messages of hate and division that have become so prevalent and vitriolic with Trump? So we were looking for a brand that did a lot of things at once. And that made the challenge, I remember feeling like the challenge was really overwhelming. That's Sharon Goldsvik, CEO and founder of Uprise. We worked together on the campaign branding and execution. Like it had to be a brand that worked as a brand that had like all of the normal things that you need from a brand. Like it has to be kind of sticky and memorable and you have to imagine people wanting to identify with it and um, you have to imagine what it could look like visually and all of those things. But then it also had to like make the case for the race class narrative, which is this really complicated concept and also like appeal specifically to Minnesotans, which is who we were, you know, looking for. And it had to respond to the opposition messages that we knew were coming and come up with a way to encapsulate all of that in like three words. As you might imagine, it took some serious brainstorming to come up with the final name for the campaign in Minnesota. We landed on greater than fear with the affirmative tagline in Minnesota, we're better off together. These checked off all the boxes that Sharon listed. Plus, they did something else. For folks who don't know, greater is Minnesotan for rural. It's the way they describe the parts of the state outside the cities. And when you're contending with anti-immigrant sentiment and anti-Muslim bias, greater Minnesota is where much of the problem really lies. Fear is so powerful and so pervasive. And it just, it clicks on a part of the brain that makes higher order reasoning almost impossible. And so countering it is so hard. The narrative we branded greater than fear was rooted in research I'd led in Minnesota and nationally on how to talk about race, link it to class, and inoculate against dog whistling, those covert racist messages that are a mainstay of GOP campaigning. The research was done with Merge Left author Ian Haney-Lopez, Lake Research Partners, the think tank Demos, and the labor union, SEIU. I know um, during our research, what we found when we were having our canvassers on the doors is that they would go out to some spots in like greater Minnesota, where it's been predominantly white for many, many decades. This is Janae Bates, the communications director for Isaiah and Faith in Minnesota. When they would knock on people's doors and say, you know, we, we all deserve a Minnesota that has um, all of these beautiful, wonderful, joyful things to keep us healthy, happy, and whole as communities. The folks, you know, that they're going to door knock, they'd say, yes, absolutely, I want free health care. Yes, absolutely, I want quality education. Yes, absolutely, I'd love to have, you know, great child care and not have to cost my whole paycheck for it. But if my Somali neighbor is going to get it, I don't want it. And so what we learned from that is that you can't have an economic populism conversation without talking about race. When it's devoid of that, then you'll, you completely decenter one, those who are marginalized and hit hardest already, but also you get this tribalism that's not helpful for anyone. And so instead, we lean into race. We absolutely name it as a tool that's being used to divide us. Um, 
so that people realize that when we're talking about the possibilities of what we can have, we can only have it when we work together and when we're taking care of one another. What Janae is describing is hard enough to tackle on its own, but it was happening within a context where prominent national pundits and the political establishment are convinced that our core aim must be to win back working-class voters, read white working class, and that this requires eschewing so-called identity politics, a term that any functional country would call human rights, and only talk economics, never race. Meanwhile, the messages from the right are designed as a one-two punch. First, stoke fear and resentment of some other that's purportedly on the take. Then, undermine people's desire for social welfare overall. Take a listen to this ad, for example. Okay, so I've lived in Minnesota all my life and I want to be nice, but I have had it. It took me two hours to get home. Every highway's closed. There's potholes everywhere. Still don't have my license tabs. They're building this train that no one wants. The schools are getting worse. And $100 million of taxpayer money for daycare was sent to Somalia. Oh, and now they want socialism. We need a new governor. If you're ready to take Minnesota back and make it nice again, vote for Jeff Johnson on August 14th. This is the Minnesota nice version of what right-wing campaigns are resorting to in every state. But for a long time, progressives across the country, including in Minnesota, were trying to win with an economic populist message that's silent about race. So in our research, we wanted to gauge the efficacy of that approach, which sounds like this. We live in the richest country in the history of the world. But that means little, because much of that wealth is controlled by a tiny handful of individuals. Despite advancements in technology and productivity, millions of Americans are working longer hours for lower wages. Wall Street and the billionaire class have rigged the rules to hand more wealth and income to the wealthiest and most powerful people of this country. We must send the message to these greedy billionaires that you cannot take advantage of all the benefits of Minnesota if you refuse to accept your responsibilities as Minnesotans. While the testing showed that our base was pretty into this message, our approaches that named race proved much more compelling to them. And the colorblind message failed to best the opposition messaging with the vast majority of voters in the middle. Folks, we found, can swing either toward the racially coded resentment the right wing is peddling or for the multiracial, equitable democracy we're pitching. This research and the real-world experience of campaigners knocking on doors tells us our economic appeals can't penetrate when we leave race unnamed. Because the right is never going to stop talking about it. When we began to have these conversations all across the state, uh, what we also found is that, you know, white farm families out in greater Minnesota were having the same problems as black families in Minneapolis, yet they were being told different stories about who's to blame and who they should be angry with about it. And uh, so we have to talk about race. As a matter of fact, we, we need to center it and make sure that when we talk about it, like we're very explicitly naming the, the dog whistles that are used to divide us, but also name that what we really need and deserve and want is a multiracial democracy where everyone's in and no one's out, which means that white people are welcome to the table, right? And, and a lot of times I think that's, that tends to be the issue. It's that it's 
it's not that white people just hate people of color. It's that they feel like they're not being included or that they one day won't be included. And maybe it has something to do with historically going the other way and, you know, a fear of some kind of retribution. But either way, um, what we what we knew for sure was that we had to talk about race. So what does it mean to make this pivot to talk inclusively about race? In Minnesota, it means creating a definition of Minnesotan that includes all of us. So we did. And it sounded like this in an ad that we ran online and on the radio. In Minnesota, we know long winters. And we know how to dig our neighbors out of the snow. Because whether it's our first Minnesota winter or our 50th, we've all been there. So when certain politicians want to divide us and make us afraid, we know that means they've got nothing else to offer. We're on to them. There are lots of ways to be Minnesotan, and all of them are greater than fear. In Minnesota, we're better off together. Vote greater than fear between now and November 6th. This new messaging gave us the ability to put forward an enticing, affirmative vision of the world we want. And it also gave us a way to contend with dog whistles from the right. And that's critical, because politics isn't solitaire. We don't just have people listening to what we say. Our messaging has to act as a rejoinder to what people hear from the opposition, too. Our opposition will continue to press their case, usually with far more money than we've got to make people hear it. And we've seen that dog whistling, using racially coded appeals to demonize people of color in order to undermine belief in the collective, that's their core approach. As Ian Haney Lopez has spelled out very clearly, whether it's OG dog whistles like welfare queen or a culture of people expecting handouts or slightly newer ones like illegal immigrants or Sharia law. These statements don't come out and name race, but they're absolutely understood as being about racial groups. And they serve not just to vilify the people in these groups. They are meant to undermine the sense that there is an us, a shared collective, a need for government. If our messaging isn't contending with that, then our economic promises have no way of penetrating in an arena in which the right is using fear, resentment, and deliberate division, precisely because they have no economic argument to make. Another thing we did with Greater Than Fear, we were really thoughtful about who were our core messengers within different communities in Minnesota. One of the hypotheses that we had is that the best messenger to advance a narrative is actually not the person who's most immediately going to benefit from that message. This is Doran. You heard her talk about the 2016 election results in Minnesota. So, for example, the candidate themselves isn't always the best seller of themselves. <laughs> because you you look at that person, you're like, yeah, but they want to be governor. So then the question becomes... Well, who is a messenger who can move a following of people? So we organized 50 people who were community leaders, meaning they are people, you wouldn't know their names, but like people around them know their names, like in St. Cloud, Minnesota, in Wilmer, Minnesota, in Northfield. And then we equipped them to have this conversation with their, like in their actual settings, like they're the pastor of their church or they're like head of the PTA or they're like a leader teacher in the school system. They're talking to people all the time. 
And while that face-to-face interaction is necessary to mounting a successful campaign, to really deal with the spread of misinformation and bad-faith right-wing dog whistles, we also had to get creative on social media as well. There are a lot of dog people in Minnesota. And so our theory was that we could motivate people to turn out for events or to turn out online and to take an action by tapping into their dog owner identity. And boy, did it work. That's Sharon again from Uprise. So the way that we did this is we had like a photo frame with a cutout where you could overlay it onto a picture of your dog or plop a picture of your dog's face into the face. And the photo was this superhero um, dog whistle fighting greater than fear dog. Uh, So we put out a call on social media and we said, send us your dog pictures and we will turn your dog into a dog whistle fighting meme that then we can use to call out instances of dog whistling that we see during the campaign season online. So you would post a photo like that. um, You'd post your dogs against dog whistles photo in response to something online or as a proactive message, you know, that's sort of lighthearted and and sort of undercuts the like terrible emotional intensity of the really racist dog whistling that was happening, which was also, you know, part of the intentionality behind this. Clever clapbacks are great. But at the end of the day, if we're really going to fight against right-wing dog whistles, we have to reframe the conversation. There's a, a thing about asking yourself always, is this the conversation that we want to be having? Or is there a different conversation that's more advantageous to us? And then how do you push things in that direction? I mean, that's what framing is, right? That's what framing a conversation is. It's asking, is this the conversation we want to be having? Or is the conversation that helps us actually about something else? And if the answer is the latter, then, you know, it's about coming up with how do you make the conversation about the thing that we want it to be about? So for our Minnesota colleagues during this campaign, the conversation could either be about Trump and how terrible he is, which, you know, ultimately just gives him more airtime, even for his terrible, odious views. Or it could be about like how we are different and what we are offering that is different. So these were the three prongs of the Greater Than Fear campaign. Explicit about discussing both race and class as interconnected, positioning community members as key messengers, and inoculating against dog whistles by explaining their true purpose and arming people with creative ways to expose and mock them. But was it enough to win the day in Minnesota? Welcome back to Kara Levin's coverage of the midterm elections. Results are just starting to roll in. The polls closed 26 minutes ago. And tonight, no surprise, NBC News is projecting Democratic Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar has won her race and kept her seat. Her challenger was Minnesota State Representative Jim Newberger. Senator Klobuchar has held that seat since 2006. The Associated Press right now, wow, is calling the race for State Representative Ilhan Omar. Well, there it is. Okay, so we got 76% over uh, 24 for Jennifer Zielinski. It now appears, according to NBC, that Dean Phillips, the Democrat, Edina native, has won the uh, third congressional district over incumbent Republican Eric Paulson. That is according to NBC. In the U.S. Senate's uh, special election, Tina Smith leading Karen Housley 59 to 37 percent. Hello, one Minnesota. Tim Waltz got more votes than any other candidate for governor in state history. As it turns out, Democrats flipped the statehouse blue, won both U.S. Senate races, five out of seven congressional races, the attorney generalship, the governorship, and lieutenant governorship, and had the highest voter turnout of any state in 2018. 
I remember texting Sharon on election night as the results came in, and she was just as floored as I was. It was like winning left and right. Just win. I mean, we won almost everything. I was like, it was amazing. Yeah. Especially like, you know, when you work on a campaign that's tied to an election, um, you know, you've been working for weeks and not getting a lot of sleep and everything is really intense and it all comes down to election day and voter turnout and what's going to happen. And so there's like that added like emotional intensity to when you're sitting there watching the returns. And actually, I should back up and say something happened in the last day and the, the weekend before the election, which is that the, the Democratic candidates in Minnesota do a bus tour on the last weekend of the election. And we started hearing that the candidates were using greater than fear as their closing argument to voters. And that was amazing. Like, as soon as I heard that, I first of all, I was like, OK, this campaign is really penetrated because that's exactly what we would hope to see. A, a clear and coordinated message that transcended candidates that went across all of these different races that made sense to people, that was persuasive, that came from the heart. Like, that was ama- that was the biggest mark of success to me of this campaign until election night. If you want to understand why Greater Than Fear was so successful, well, it all comes down to affirming what our side believes and is for, while also responding to fear-based messaging from the right. So Sharon and I talked about why it's traditionally been so hard for progressives to deal with what conservatives dish out. It's such a tricky problem. Like, it's actually important to say that Muslims are not terrorists. But it's hard to understand that saying it that way doesn't actually change people's minds about it. You feel like it should. You feel like making factual statements should change people's minds. But what we know about persuasion is that that's actually not the case. People decide much more based on emotion than they do based on straight up facts and all kinds of other psychological factors, right? Like it's just people are really like genuinely outraged and and feel like if I just explain it and I explain why it's not true, then like people will understand it. But it's a big problem when we do that because we're actually handing over the conversation to our opposition. We're letting them set the terms of what the conversation is going to be about. I mean, for me, I think that's really what the race class narrative unlocks. It unlocks a way of not simply negating these horrible lies that the other side is telling continuously, but it actually explains the purpose of those lies. It explains why they're telling those lies, the desired outcome of those lies. And so it takes it from being a he said, she said kind of situation. They say X is doing this. We say X is not doing this to actually saying they're deliberately intending to divide us based on what we look like, where we come from, what our accents, you know, how we worship, because that is the way that if we are divided, they can continue to hoard more and more of the spoils. And that is what takes it from this, you know, they say yes, we say no, to an actual explanation, an origin story, and something that people can feel is credible and true and kind of matches their lived experience. The thing that I was thinking about a lot, both in our our sort of um, branding process and in the, in the, the whole creation of this campaign, I think that a lot of people have been feeling politics in a way that we might not have been feeling it so acutely in the past. And part of that is the effect of these fear-based messages that have been coming from the right for so long. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that I really wanted us to accomplish 
with greater than fear was to create a different way of feeling about engaging in politics that was motivating, that felt good, that tapped into these like good feelings that can help you overcome these horrible feelings that are coming from just like being alive in the world in America in 2018. So now we've got 2020 on the horizon and the cottage industry of think pieces admonishing progressives to stick to bread and butter issues and to avoid questions of racial justice from immigrant rights to police brutality is doing a brisk business. But these approaches fail to account for the reality that turning out our base is core to how we win any election. And since the progressive base is largely people of color in most places, they're left cold when we refuse to address the issues that consume their lives, like being able to make it home without being targeted by police, or seeing the members of your community who are new immigrants be treated with respect. And even just with the white working class, the coveted Obama to Trump voter were meant to be chasing. The research proves that a colorblind, economic, populist appeal doesn't work with them either. Because the opposition will not stop their dog whistling. There's no choice about race entering the discussion. It's already front and center. So if we're not explaining how it is that whites feel that their economic fortunes have suffered and can't make ends meet, and they keep hearing that it's the fault of those people, then our economic prescriptions won't make any sense. Free college or cheaper healthcare sounds nice, but no one will believe that's possible if they're also hearing that immigrants are gaming the system. The race-class narrative has proven its potency in Minnesota and beyond as both a persuasion and a turnout approach. The perceived wisdom of avoiding the subject of race as a strategy to win anywhere, and certainly to win back the Midwest, is no wisdom at all. I'm Anat Shanker Osorio. Brave New Words is produced by Western Sound for ASO Communications. Our theme song is Somewhere to Begin by T.R. Ritchie. Thanks to the entire team behind Greater Than Fear, including Education Minnesota, SEIU Minnesota, Faith in Minnesota, and the Our Minnesota Future Coalition. Special thanks to our interviewees, as well as Anna Brelia, Alexa Howard, Kenza Haj Musa, Josh Keller, and Crystal Klein. To see photos of the Greater Than Fear campaign in action, our iconic posters, and our video ad, check out bravenewwordspod.com. And please subscribe to this podcast, rate it wherever you listen, and spread the word. A song is somewhere to begin, to search for something worth believing in. If changes are to come, There are things that must be done And a song is somewhere to begin